This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast, 
with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Lee Phillips. Now, Lee is a London firefighter, tactical athlete, and model. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the fire service, working on the London fireboat, Grenfell, mental health, strength and conditioning in the fire service, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Lee Phillips. Enjoy. Well, Lee, I want to start by saying thank you so much. I know it's your evening there in the UK, so thank you for jumping on this call and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So, despite your Welsh accent, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I'm actually sitting in Battersea in southwest London. Um, Yeah, as you say, I'm from Wales originally, but I've been in London for the last 22 years. You still retained your Welsh accent pretty thickly, though. Yeah, still got a bit of the twang there. I don't think I ever <laughs> want to lose it, to be honest. Yeah, I've still got somewhat of a British accent. Mine's kind of bastardized in all the traveling I've done, but I think it's it's still there underneath. Um, all right, well then, starting at the very beginning, tell me where you were born, and then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Okay, cool. Um, so I was born in uh, a town called Swansea, which is in South Wales. Um, it's a coastal town in South Wales. It's sort sort of like a uh, into sort of like a working class family. Um, that area of South Wales was um, a big sort of coal mining area. So um, sort of at the time I was born, the coal mine started to close down. So um, there was quite high unemployment there. Um, sorry, I'm diverging. <laughs> diverging no, no, bit, no, but, tangent away. I love that because it paints uh, but, a picture of where yeah, you're sorry. from. Going back to the family thing, uh, so yeah, my, um, I'm the eldest of, well, four brothers, but so my mum and dad split up when I was two and my brother, my mum was still pregnant with my brother um, and I had sort of a, a difficult relationship with my dad. He wasn't really around, even though my mum tried to sort of, you know, make an effort to take us to see him. So it was growing up, it was me, my mum, and my younger brother, Rob. He's three years younger than me. And my grandparents, because my mum's an only child. So it was it was the three of us and my grandparents up until the age I, I was about seven years old. And then my mum met um, another guy, and they got together. Uh, they then had, he had a son from a previous relationship, and they then had a son together. So I've got one full brother, one half brother, and one step brother. But we're all really tight. We're all really close. We don't we don't think of each other as like half brothers or step brothers. But 
yeah, I've got three younger brothers. <laughs> well, talk to me about Swansea. You said about going on a tangent. I love tangents. So we have uh, an industry, whether it was you know mining in a lot of the places in the UK or the US, or whether it was you know the car industry, and then that closes down and it leaves a lot of the people in the mm. town with no real you know avenue of, of the skill set that they developed and, and gave for a corporation. So what did you experience as far as the impact of the closure of the mining industry in Swansea as you started growing up? Well, I was actually born in Swansea, but then when I was about two years old, my parents moved to a town called Aberdeer, which is actually in the South Wales Valleys, which is more into the proper like mining area of South Wales. So growing up, I can remember, I can remember the miners' strike. So it was when basically the government started closing down the coal mines, and the miners' union started obviously rebelling against it. And I just remember there being big riots on the streets. Uh, lots of police around, you know, it was, it was a really difficult time for the people back there in South Wales because their livelihood was just being taken away from them. Um, and then after that, it wasn't really replaced by anything. So growing up, there was quite high unemployment in the era I grew up in, um, unfortunately, and all then the problems that are associated with that. So um, there's quite a lot of drug abuse, um, you know, alcoholism and those sorts of, sorts of things you get in areas where there's, there is quite unemployment, quite high unemployment. Yeah, and it mirrors, you know, places that people have come from in, in the US here. You know, you, you move a corporation to a town, whether it's mining or, like I said, you know, making cars, and then you use that workforce and then you just leave a void. And then that, yeah. I think, is, you know, the mental health crisis that we're seeing and you and I see when we're wearing a uniform is a lot of these towns, you know, that was snatched away from them. Nothing was put in place. They weren't kind of given tools to transition and take their skill set that they had as a miner into something else, whatever the next level is. And we just kind of abandon these towns. They turn into ghost towns. And that's when then you see a lot of the the kind of um, illicit drug trade preying on the men and women of those towns because, you know, they know that, that there's a void that needs to be filled. And if it's not going to be with the job they used to do, well, then, you know, drowning yourself in, in drugs and alcohol is, is going to be an easy target for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really sad. You know, I, my mum still lives back there now and I, I go back, you know, to see my mum and my brothers and, you know, to see it from how, from when I was growing up to now, it's like not a lot has changed. You know, there's not still not been a lot of investment there. There's still very high unemployment and, unless you, you're in the city of like, so the, so the town Aberdeer where I actually grew up is in between Cardiff and Swansea. And unless you go to the city, there, there isn't a lot of work in, in those South Wales valleys, unfortunately. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's a bit depressing really. <laughs> well, you think about what we need at the moment and we'll get into this. You, know, you think about the nutrition side, the people in the cities really have kind of lost, a lot of them have lost a sense of where food comes from. You know, a lot of our foods are covered in chemicals and our meat is full of, you know, hormones and antibiotics. And so a lot of the land that maybe was being dug under, I'm sure, I mean, I went to drama school in, in Cardiff for a year, so I lived there. Beautiful, you know, arable land that you could go back to, to creating healthy, clean food and putting that industry, you know, lighting a fire under that industry. We put so much money into managing a virus the last two years, and I saw next to no money being invested in, for example, local farms so that we can use the, the, the skill set that we had in the rural community to what we did 100 years ago and, and moving backwards. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, like going on to the whole COVID thing, you know, the, like the, the highest mortality thing for, for COVID was being overweight. So like you say, by providing proper nutrition and going down that route, you know, rather than medicating and, you know, doing giving the, all these vaccines, which long-term have been proven not to not really have a long-term beneficial effect. Why not go down that route of providing people with proper nutrition, improving their health, which will have the, all those benefits, like you say. It's crazy. It is. It's, it's heartbreaking because, you know, the message was we care about health, but the actions didn't ma match the message. You know, it was a, a quick fix pill that, like you said, definitely seemed to minimize or, or reduce the symptoms in some of the sick people and maybe allow them to survive, but certainly didn't give the immunity that was promised at the beginning. And then, you know, what really pissed me off was then they took away first responders jobs because they didn't get this vaccine which when we look back now didn't even have the efficacy that we were initially promised so i think that's a really really unethical thing it needs to be reversed did they actually do that in the states did they they did sack people that's that's crazy that's outrageous because they threatened it in in the uk there's a doctor that goes to my gym and she she wasn't vaccinated um and they threatened her right up until the last minute and then they, they eventually they did back down but um yeah that's that's just crazy yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of, you know, what actually makes you you fit and resilient, talk to me about what sports you were doing and the exercise that you were exposed to when you were in school age. Uh, so growing up in South Wales, uh, rugby is the national sport. So, um, yeah, rugby was the main sport in school. Played a lot of rugby, um, but also basketball. That, that area of South Wales, it's got quite a big um, sort of basketball community. Uh, in the South Wales Valleys. So my my stepdad, he he played and then he got me and my brothers into playing as well. So I actually played quite a bit of basketball growing up too. Uh, you played, didn't you play at the international level at the end? Yeah, I got into the, the Welsh squad, the under 18 Welsh squad before before I left South Wales to go to university. So yeah, I played a little, little bit of, of international level there, schoolboy. When I think, like, in America, they have, for example, the World Series, which is baseball, but hardly anyone plays baseball except pretty much America, Canada, and Japan, and some of the, you know, the yeah. Central South American countries. So it's not really the world. You know, the World Cup, the Football World Cup is truly the world, you know, the Rugby World Cup. What did international basketball look like for a Welsh basketball player? Um, it was, the well, the only other international teams I played were England, um, Scotland and Ireland so I, I never played against like the US or any of those sorts of countries so it was just the home nations teams I played against but you know it was pretty competitive um, um, yeah it was, it was good fun I enjoyed it now what about your strength conditioning philosophy like when I was young we were really kind of raised in a lot of the a lot of the wrong information, you know, strength training was basically bodybuilding, you know, it was machines and, um, you know, sets of 12. Um, and then nutrition was bowls of pasta. And, you know, it was it was very different to how it looks now. So I've had to really kind of unlearn a lot of the stuff that I was taught as I got older. What were the kind of principles and philosophies that you grew up in the kind of, you know, 16 to 18 range? Yeah, well, God, that was like before the internet, obviously. So Everything I learned back then was from magazines and books. Um, so I had a, um, uh, where, where we used to live in the house, there was a garage underneath the house. So I had this old weight set down in the garage, which was one of those ones with the, the plastic 
uh, weights with the cement inside, like the concrete inside. I don't know if you remember those. The Argos sets. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> the ones. Yeah, so I had one of those down in my mom's garage, and I used to go down there, and I just, I just used to, I didn't know what I was doing to be honest with you. When I first started, I just used to lift. You know, I used to watch some videos, just watch some Arnold Schwarzenegger videos that I got on VHS, um, and yeah, all the stuff I. I learned. I learned from books, books and magazines. So yeah, it was it was pretty much trial and error at, the, at that time. Now, when you started competing at a sport internationally, did you, were you exposed to some different training philosophies, or was that still kind of um, ingrained then? Um, with the basketball, we didn't really have any specific strength and conditioning. It, so yeah, the, the national basketball team in Wales isn't very well funded because um, it's a it's a very mi- mi- minority sport. So we didn't have massive resources. So there wasn't like a specific strength and conditioning coach. So most of our training sessions were actually running through drills and plays on the court. Um, the other stuff was just left to ourselves to do. Um, and that that's initially why I started lifting weights because I wanted to get better at rugby and basketball. And I knew I had to get stronger, um, I had to get bigger. So yeah, that, that and that's initially what led me to to lifting weights myself and trying trying to improve my strength and condition. Now, at that same school age, what were you dreaming of becoming uh, career wise? God, I honestly did not have a clue what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I I just I just didn't know. You know, some people are really focused and they know. Well, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a vet or I just didn't know, and I didn't. Re- we didn't really get very good career advice in schools. I don't know. Like I went to um, a comprehensive school, so it was, you know, the, the career advice wasn't great. And then, like say, in the era we grew up, there wasn't really a lot of inspiration. Do you know what I mean? So you didn't really, you didn't even like after I went to university and I found out all the different careers that y- you could go into. It sort, of, it sort of was the wrong way around for me. I needed that, that information before I got to university. It was only when I got to university I found out all these different careers that were available. But um, yeah, growing up, I always loved sports and I always loved the outdoors. The military did appeal to me at one point. I was I was thinking of the military, um, but I ended up going to university and then taking a different path in, in, in the end, which I'm sure we'll probably get onto in a minute. I had a similar experience in school where the only career we did this and one of my guests said this recently, but we did this thing where you basically take a personality test and it spits out what it thinks you should do, which again, you know, we're talking about supposed AI back in, you know, 1989, not, ex- not exactly yeah. technologically advanced. And I forget what it spat out, but it was terrible. But then I also had a, a medical, you know, medical exam at school and they told me I was colorblind and I could never be a firefighter and a, a pilot and anything. So I was basically told what I couldn't do rather than let's explore all the options that you can do, you know? So I agree with you yeah. completely. It was a very, in my opinion, a very doom and gloom kind of uh, perspective of what was waiting for you when you graduated high school. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's frustrating, really, because I think a lot of those kids, you know, with better career advice, would, would go on to do much better or different things. Like, there's a lot of people I went to school with who are still living back there in, in South Wales who've never left, you know what I mean? And they, I'm not saying they, they, you know, if that's what they want to do and they're happy to do that, then fair enough. But maybe with, you know, better career advice or better guidance, then they would have gone on to do other things or, 
you know, just different things that they never thought were, were possible. But yeah, and even different learning styles. Like, um, yeah. you know, there's people that are so good with their hands. My my stepson found mechanics, you know, and he kind of fumbled around for a while when he, he graduated and had gone through the academic route and hated it. And he turns out, you know, he's, he starts learning a mechanic and it's incredible. Conversely, for me, we did CDT, which I think craft design technology, I think it stood for. And yeah, we had I the opportunity that. to make stuff. And I realized, okay, I'm absolutely shit at this. This is not <laughs> what I'm good for. You know, but the fire service is good because I just got to break stuff, not make stuff. So that was the right fit. Yeah. <laughs> So then you said you were at university. Walk me through you know, what, you, what you were studying, what your major was, and then how that ultimately took you to the London Fire Brigade. Um, yeah, so like I said, career advice in school was pretty poor. I didn't really know what I wanted to do at the time. But all my friends were going to university. Um, my mum wanted me to go to university, and I, wasn't, I, I never really got along too well with my, um, my stepdad. So... I knew I didn't want to. I didn't want to stay um, stay there, um, and I didn't want to stay in South Wales because I knew there was no opportunities there. I knew I wanted I wanted to get away, so I didn't actually get the grades that I wanted in in my A levels. Um, and I went. We have a process in the UK, UK called a clearing process, whereby if you don't get the grades you want, then you can look around afterwards and see what places are left in, in universities, and then you, you get a place in university. So. I ended up getting a place in Leicester University, which is in the Midlands in England. Um, and I ended up studying geology, which was something I didn't want to do. But um, initially I wanted to do geography, but I didn't get the grades to do that at Leicester University. So they told me I could do geology and switch after my first year, which I never did. I ended up sticking with geology. Um, but yeah, that's how I then ended up going to Leicester and doing geology at Leicester University. I'd never actually been to the city before my first day where I got dropped off there and then my stepdad dropped me off. He was like, see you later. <laughs> he finally got rid of me. And that was me in Leicester. Did you ever experience any issues with the English being Welsh? Cause one thing I talk about a lot and people you know, in America be like, Oh, do you, you know, do you hate the Irish? Do you hate the Scottish? And I'm like, we are three tiny countries on this rock next to another rock that has another country on it. But we're all the same people. But when I was in drama school in Cardiff, I heard that, you know, some English got beaten up by some of the lads in Cardiff. And, you know, you, you hear this. What has been your your actual in-person perspective of any, what I guess you call it, racism between our little tiny nations? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, you know, when I, well, when I first got to university, but my accent was a lot thicker than it is now. And I remember going into um, the bank to open a student bank account. And the, the lady behind the desk, she couldn't understand what I was saying, even though I was speaking English because my accent was so thick. And she ended up, she had to go and get another another person from the bank to come and speak to me because she literally couldn't understand what I was saying. Need an interpreter. <laughs> yeah. And, but, and then obviously you get the, you know, there's a, there's a fine line, isn't it? You get the Mickey take in and the piss take in. But, um, you know, you get called a sheep shag from being from Wales, obviously. Um, but you know, yeah, it's just one of the, one of those things. I've got quite quite thick skin, so uh, yeah, I can handle it. But not, but you never got beaten up or attacked just because you were Welsh or anything like that. No, no. But I have heard of stories from my, my English friends going to South Wales, going and it being the other way around, unfortunately, which yeah is is a shame. You know, um, 
there's a there's a big rivalry between Wales and England when it comes to rugby, and I think some people, small-minded people, maybe take it a bit too far, you know, and um, yeah, get into that sort of stuff. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, it just always it always blew my mind. Like I said, I went to drama school in in Wales. So if you look at my and three or four generations back, I'm you know Irish, Welsh, Scottish, English. So that like, you can't not be from our countries because there's no <laughs> there's no yeah. barbed wire fence and armed guards. You know, we're all from from there, and it just I don't know it just blows me away the moment there's any sort of issue you know issue with Britain or the UK, and you know I, I consider Ireland part of. You know, we're all brothers and sisters, whatever you label your, yeah. your passport. But it just, it just baffles me that we have imaginary lines and, and therefore because of that imaginary line, you're going to hate the person that's on the same piece of rock that you are in. It's just, yeah, uh, it's crazy. I think like it goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, that area of South Wales where I grew up is high unemployment. People haven't got things to do, you know, guys, young adults, guys are angry, you know, they're frustrated. They see, they see English people coming to Cardiff for a night out or, you know, to enjoy themselves. And then they'll, they'll take out their anger and frustration on those people. Not because, well, because they say it's because they're English, but it's the, deep down it's, it's something deeper than that, isn't it? I think, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think that's exactly it. You know, whether it's someone's different color skin, different sexual you know, orientation, ultimately it's a reflection of the individual, you know, perpetrating the violence, not the one that's actually being victimized. Yeah, definitely. So you thought you were doing geography. You ended up with geology. That sounds like a spelling mistake to me, but <laughs> <laughs> but you ultimately are not don't see yourself as working with rocks the rest of your career. So how did no. that end up going to moving to London and joining the fire brigade? Yeah, so I um, I, I didn't enjoy my my studying at university. If I'm totally honest, I, I did like I say I wasn't doing something that I enjoyed. So I, I enjoyed the university experience because I met a lot of good friends who I'm. I'm still friends with now, but um, the actual studying wasn't for me. Um, so I finished up there in Leicester and I was actually with a girl from Leicester at the time, a girlfriend. Um, so I stayed living in Leicester after I finished university for about a year and I got a job working for a bank. Um, and I was working in a call center behind a desk, hating my life thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> um, and one of my mates who... Um, I was at university with, he was applying to London Fire Brigade and he showed me it, showed me this stuff. And he was like, actually, I thought, thought to myself, why haven't I thought of this before? You know, it's something that's perfect for me. I'm, I don't want to be stuck behind a desk. I want somewhere where I'm going to be physically active, have to keep fit. I've always fancied living in London. Um, and yeah, so, so I applied basically. I applied when I was living in Leicester. And fortunately, at the, well, at, at the time it was, um, you had a telephone number, you had to ring to get an application form. It was something ridiculous at the time that they had for every hundred vacancies, they had a couple of thousand people trying to, trying to get into the London Fire Brigade. And I was just really lucky. I managed to get an application form, uh, sent my application form off, went through the recruitment process and I actually got in first time. Um, and there, there were guys in my squad, it was like their fifth or sixth time applying. But yeah, I just got lucky, I think that first time and yeah, got in and been doing it ever since. So what does that process look like as far as, you know, the written test element to it and then the physical test? Oh, you take me back now. That was 22 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, well, the application form back then, it was just pen and paper. It, you know, it's all online now. But, um, yeah, it was pen and paper. Um, the first thing that I remember reading at the top of the paper was 
make sure this is filled in block capitals in black ink. So, and I found out afterwards that that was the first sift basically on the application forms. If you'd filled it in in blue ink and you hadn't used capitals, your application went straight in the bin. So, um, yeah, you see, it was an application. I've got to think back now. It was an application form first. Um, then you went with your, your application form went through. Then you came down, you did an interview. Um, then you did, I can't remember. It was either the physical test or the interview next, but the physical tests were, you had to do the bleep test. Are you familiar with the bleep test? Yeah, like the shuttle run with the, yeah, the time the getting shorter runs. and shorter. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't too strenuous. I think it was like level nine or 10 at the time. Um, then you had to do some other strength-related tests like um, to extend the ladder so you could extend the ladder by, see if you could extend the ladder by yourself. Um, some confined space tests where they put you in a, a rat-run type maze with um, obstructed vision just to see if, you could navigate your way out of that without panicking. Um, yeah, and say if you passed those, you had the interview, and then the final stage was a was a medical. Um, and if yeah, if you got through all of that, then you got uh, given the date to start at Southwark Training Centre, which was the the training centre at the time, based in Southwark, which was central London. So yeah, I got through all that, and then I got my date started in um, December two thousand. Beautiful. Well, with your entry to that, obviously, as you said, you're talking 22 years ago now. What was the bar as, as far as the physical side? How? What was the expectations of your fitness and, and what were the, the tools they gave you to improve your strength and conditioning as a firefighter once you were in Southern? Um, once we were in, obviously, the, the actual training itself was, was pretty physical. You know, lots of hose running, extended ladders, dragging dummies, BA, BA drills. Uh, but we also used to have, I think it was like two or three PT sessions a week where we'd go into the gym and the, the PTIs would take us through some strength and conditioning. Um, so there was that, but I always used to do my own stuff as well because I, we're going back to what we said earlier, I was always into sort of fitness and, and going to the gym. So I, I always used to do my own thing as well. So when I'd finish, when we'd finish for the day at Southwark, I'd, I'd go to the gym on my way home or sometimes before we'd start for the day. So you know, they'd, they'd provide you with a certain level of, of training. Um, but if you wanted to do your other stuff on top of that, then that was up to you. Now, what about discussions on mental health? Like when I entered the fire service in 2004, you know, there was, there was nothing. And, and, you know, we've really kind of seen the evolution since. Was there any discussion, you know, from your side in 2000? Yeah, there was nothing. No, back then it was, yeah. It wasn't even, I can't even remember it being talked about, to be honest with you. Um, there was there was the, we've got a service called Advice and Counseling Service. I'm pretty sure that was available. Then it was, that was maybe mentioned um, because they'd contact you on certain occasions if you'd attended certain incidents or any incidents involving kids, uh, mass casualties, or any incidents where a firefighter had been injured or killed. They were like the triggers for, this advice and counseling service to automatically contact you. But other than that, you were told it was there um, and you could then use it if you could contact them if you thought you, need, you needed to speak to someone about something. Well, one area that I've talked about a lot on here that a lot of us don't really think about when we're talking about the mental health stuff is what we brought into the job with us. I mean, most of us that join the fire service, police, etc., usually there's going to be an element of trauma 
that subconsciously drove us to a profession where we help people. You mentioned the divorce. You mentioned about not getting on with your stepdad. When you look back now with your much older, wiser eyes, are there any elements of your childhood that you would consider traumatic in some way, shape, or form that you know you literally brought with you before you pinned on the badge? Yeah, def- definitely. I've had I've had a lot of time, and I've thought about that a lot recently. Um, you know, the relationship with my dad. So. Like I said, my dad left my mum when, when I was very young, two years old. My brother, my mum was still pregnant with my brother. And then I always had a difficult relationship with my dad. He always worked overseas. So when he'd come back to the UK, my mum would make an effort to take us to see him. And then he would just, yeah, he, he was just, he'd pretend he, he, he wanted to see me and my brother, but then he'd just disappear. And he, he ended up, it was a long story with my dad, but yeah, he ended up, um, retiring out to Venezuela, um, and a couple of couple of years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from my um, from one of my dad's friends out there in Venezuela, and he said, um, "Your dad's had a massive heart attack and a stroke. He, um, I think you need to come to Venezuela. It might be the last time you see your dad." So I was like, "Shit, this is this guy, my dad. You know, I've never never really had a proper relationship with him. Now he's he sounds like he's on death's door. So what do I do? So I end up." ring my brother we booked the flight we went straight out to venezuela it was a nightmare journey to get out there we flew to caracas then we had to get a connecting flight which was overbooked so we ended up sleeping on the floor in caracas airport got this connecting flight the next day down to the town he lived in and got to the hospital and like to see my dad he was like a, sh- a shadow of his former self he's he'd always been a big drinker and a smoker and he just I don't know. He was like he was on on self destructive, and he'd survived this this heart attack and a stroke, but he wasn't wasn't in a good way. So, sorry, I'm diverging again, yeah, aren't I? But um, me and my brother ended up, you know, putting him on a plane, bringing him back with us to the UK um, to to get treatment. Uh, managed to get him back to the UK. Um, so my brother, my brother, he still lives in South Wales, so he took him to my auntie's house where he was staying. I had to come back to London. Obviously, I was I was on duty back in work in London, and um, we left him at my auntie's house. We were getting getting him booked into doctors and things, and then the next thing we know, my auntie calls us and said, "Yeah, your dad's gone back to Venezuela." <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so that's how he that's how he sort of repaid me and me and my brother. He just then he just booked, jumped on the plane and went back to Venezuela without even telling us. You know, we went all that way to get him to try and help him, and then. Yeah, he ended up yeah just going back to Venezuela and doing that. So, you know, yeah, that sort of relationship with my dad, I think, definitely had an effect on me. It made me think, like, I haven't got any kids at the moment, but it made me think if I if I do ever have kids, I don't want to be that type of person. Do you know what I mean? You can go to one or two ways, can't you? You can either be the same person, or you can think I'm not going to be that person, and that definitely made me feel that I'm not I'm not going to be that person. And then yeah, going to my stepdad it was I think for, for me and him it was like it was always me my mum and my brother and then he came along I don't know I guess I was maybe the I thought I was the alpha male of the family and he comes in and he wants to be the alpha male and it just was a, we just butted heads it wasn't it wasn't the best relationship and again it just it it made me think that I don't want to be like that um, and it made me yeah yeah I think that's what that's why I, I do what I do now, I think, because I get a lot of satisfaction from helping people. And 
yeah, maybe it's because I didn't have a lot, some a lot, um, someone to help me when I was younger. So by doing it now, it's so I don't know, it's some sort of weird mental thing that I think I'm, I'm, don't know, giving something back. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I just know I enjoy it, and that, and that's what I do. What I do now, but yeah. Well, and I think so many people have that story, and I think that's why we need to kind of shift the focus a little bit. When 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 I've applied to all my departments here, very long story, very short, you have to do a polygraph, you know, lie detector test, and you have to do a psych test, and both of those are smoke and mirrors. They're not, you know, the the psychology um, experts that I've had on, you know, say both of those are just not, you know, accepted as great tools in the psychology. Um, so thinking that so many of us were going to have some sort of trauma in our past, you know, and coming into this profession for good reason, as you said, subconsciously, probably to make the world a little better and try and break that cycle that we grew up around. Um, it, to me, adds value to maybe when we first walk through the door, whether you're going through, you know, the fire academy, for example, that maybe we should put some counseling sessions in at the beginning. Firstly, to create a relationship with a counselor so that as we progress through our career, we immediately have a go-to, but also to open the door to maybe start offloading some of the things that we brought into this profession. Because one of the compounding elements that I see over and over again for some of our you know, men and women that struggle as we go through our career is you didn't walk in with an empty bucket. You walked in with a bucket, you know, quarter full, half full, three quarters full. So sleep deprivation and the things that we see in the job are you know people can deal with them some people that that had either addressed the trauma before or maybe they were very fortunate had a great upbringing but some people that might be the straw that breaks the camel's back you know five years ten years into their career where that starts overflowing yeah definitely um like you said i think you know, I, I, I was never, well, I'm still not great at it now, but I've never been good about talking about how I feel. And I think, like you say, if you had something like that at the start when you, when you joined and then, you know, you know, like the, use the bucket analogy. So it is, it's like that bucket that's getting fuller and fuller. And unless you turn that tap on, on the, at the bottom and drain some of it out by talking about things, then it's going to get to that point where that bucket overflows and then you're in shit Creek. So it's, like you say, yeah. If you, if you could do that at the start, that's that is a that is a great idea, um, because yeah, but I think a lot of people do bring a lot of lot of baggage, and even even you think you don't, you do. You know, everyone's everyone's got some sort of baggage or some sort of sort of trauma in them. I think absolutely. And at first, I was amazed how many people had grown up around alcoholism drug addictions you know how many were sexually abused as children i mean way more than i would have thought but there's also yeah. people that were the middle child that you know the, the one example one of my friends they had a son then they want a daughter they had a second boy and then the third child was a daughter so the second boy was kind of basically not loved like the other two were so that can be yeah. crushing to a child you know what kids that were adopted kids whose parents walked out whatever it was um so yeah i mean so many of us have that and i think disregarding that is disregarding such a large piece of that overall mental health pie yeah 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 it's, it's, yeah it makes, it makes me think like like i said i thought i've been thinking about it a lot lately um and just you know when some things just suddenly click you think that's why i was like that because it you know 
yeah, it just sort it just all sort of comes together at some at some point, and you and it just all clicks. And you think, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense now. And I think it's only as you get older and you can put things into perspective a bit more. And I don't know, it's just yeah, it just I think it just takes time. And to have that, if someone could tell you that when you are in your twenties or even in your thirties, do you know what I mean? Then I think yeah, you could help a lot of people like that. Absolutely. Well, with you know, obviously you've got mental health, we've got physical health as well, and those two are completely interrelated. You ultimately, you know, became an, an elite physical, tactical athlete within the fire service in a number of different competitions. Walk me through the journey physically from you being a new recruit with the London Fire Brigade to how you found yourself, you know, entering some of these competitions and ultimately winning some of these competitions. Um, yeah, so, well, when I joined, I, th I thought that I was joining, like, I thought everyone in the fire brigade was going to be super fit and it, it was going to be, you know, I was joining some elite sort of level of fitness. And then I, I got to my first station and I quickly realized that it wasn't quite like that. <laughs> um, but for me, like fitness, like I say, has always been a massive part of what I do. And it helps with mental health, like you say, but... So I didn't have anyone on my watch at the time. When I joined my watch, actually, at the time, so most of the guys were a lot older than me. I was the, so the the previous recruit to me had been in ten years, so I was I was probably the new guy on on the watch. So they they were all sort of guys in their forties. They'd done done quite a bit of time, and they weren't really into their fitness. Do you know what I mean? They 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 were very good firefighters, but they weren't fit. But I just wanted to carry on carry on keeping fit and doing what I do. So. There was, um, at the time, there was a competition called London's Fitness Firefighter, which was organized by our welfare department. So they're like the sports section of the London, London Fire Brigade. And I thought, oh, that's, that sounds like a bit of me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enter that and have a go. So I, um, I entered, uh, the first time I entered, I, I don't even know where I came. I was, I was shit, <laughs> to be honest with you. And that, to me, for that, was, that was like a rude awakening for me. I was like, oh, I, th I thought I was, I thought I was fit, you know, and I, I was relatively fit, but not in the specific job-related tasks that were put together in this in this competition. So that really motivated me, and from that, I then went away and trained, and I came back the next year and ended up winning the competition, and I won it for I can't, I think it was about six consecutive years until they stopped doing it. Um, and then from from that, I found out about other competitions um, in Europe. So Firefighter Combat Challenge, which originates in, actually in the States. I don't know, are you familiar with that? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a circuit in the, in Europe where they do that. I've also I've actually been to the States. I did the Firefighter Combat Challenge when it was in uh, Myrtle Beach. Um, did it out there, um, and then yeah, just competed in other. Then found out about all these other competitions within the fire service like the world firefighter games um world police and firefighter games i've just come back from that it was in rotterdam last month competed in that one so i just yeah it was just a great opportunity to you know keep fit do something i love and also something that is part of the job and it's, it's going to help you in in doing the job and and in your profession keep your professionalism up so it's just something i really enjoyed so we talked to you know about bench pressing Argos weights in, in the garage when you were young. 
walk me through that evolution. Like I, I entered the world of CrossFit, for example, in 2006-ish, and that brought such a different, you know, training philosophy for me. Before that, I'd been running and push-ups and, you know, the regular bodybuilding workout type style exercise routine. Then I found CrossFit. Then I found Strongman and some other things that I started incorporating. What did the evolution of your strength and conditioning look like over the last, you know, 15, 20 years? Yeah, so like you say, I was I was very similar. I started off doing the bodybuilding style because back then in the day there wasn't there wasn't any CrossFit. You know, there was Arnold Schwarzenegger um, pumping iron. <laughs> um, so I started off doing that, and then as I as I went when I went to university, I started doing uh, more like rowing and, th- and things. And again, CrossFit CrossFit sort of wasn't around. I was doing sort of functional type stuff, you know, sled pushes and drags and things and you know, D balls, but, or sorry, not D balls, sandbags, but I never really got into CrossFit until I was, when, how old was I when I got started CrossFit? I was, I think I was 39 when I started CrossFit. Um, so yeah, I started at a CrossFit gym and obviously, obviously loved it. And I've been doing that sort of style of training ever since. Um, yeah. And I, yeah. Love it. Is there a call or are there calls that you think back on where as you know as you progress and this this evolves and you find crossfit or maybe it was before that that you saw on the fire ground the application of this training i mean there's a few that are, that come to my mind that was post you know starting crossfit that i was amazed how much better i was as a firefighter did you have any of those aha moments any of your calls um yeah, I guess there's, there's one that probably sticks out more than um, than the others, just because it was quite a sort of dramatic one. So we got called to a person threatening to jump. I actually hadn't been in the job that that long. It was, I think it was I'd been done about four four or five years at the time. We got called. It was like a Sunday afternoon. Person threatening to jump from um, uh, a third floor roof. So we we pulled up outside. You could see this woman up on on the third floor roof. Um, there was a police officer um, out of the Velux window. You know the Velux window in the pitch roof. Yeah. Um, talk chatting to her. So the, the the leading firefighter in charge at the time, he's like, "Right, get the nine meter off, pitch it up, um, and lead it up there." And I was like, "Okay, what do I do?" You know, <laughs> I've, I've never been trained out to negotiate with someone who's about to jump off a roof. But um, so I started climbing. So we pitched the ladder and they start climbing up the ladder. And as I'm about three quarters of the way up, this woman jumps. And I, I don't know, it was just instinct, really. I just put my arm out um, and she hit my arm and I managed to grab hold of her ankle. So now I've got this woman upside down by her ankle hanging off the side of the ladder, uh, managed to pull her onto the ladder. And then one of the other guys comes up and we slide her down the ladder. And obviously she gets taken away. She, she'd um, done a lot of drugs and she, she didn't really know where she was, but... Um, so I think, yeah, without definitely without my training, you know, there's no way I would have been able to do that. Um, you know, catch her, hang on to her, and also hold on to the ladder without without falling off. So, yeah, I think definitely that, that's that's probably one that sticks out in my mind. That's amazing, absolutely amazing. When I think of you know some of the the career fires of London, obviously Grenfell was one. I had um, Ricky on, Ricky Nuttall, um, who was there. Yeah. Were you yeah. were you on shift that day? Did you respond to that particular one? I was on duty that night. It was a red watch red watch night shift, but I was on the um, fireboat, so I was stationed on the fireboat at the time. So I think we were the only 
station in London that didn't respond to Grenfell. So, yeah. And what does that look like? I mean, I never thought about that. So, so working a fireboat on the Thames, um, you know, what, what is that from a firefighter's perspective? Um, so it's, it's the only uh, fireboat station in the whole of the UK. Um, there's one station on the Thames. Uh, we've got two boats, but only one is crewed permanently. The other is a spear. Um, and yeah, most of, most of the shouts are water rescue. So we get got a lot of people jumping off the bridges, uh, a lot of suicides, obviously, again, mental health issues. Um, they make up, I'd say, 80 to 90% of our shouts. But also we obviously then respond to fires, either on, on vessels on the Thames or on buildings surrounding the Thames. Um, obviously, we can fight the fire directly from the river or we can pump water ashore to the, uh, to the land crews. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Interesting station. I was there for seven years. Um, it's a specialist station. Um, and yeah, I love my time there. It was great to, to you know, come from land. I did 15 years on land station before going to the river. Did seven years on the river. And then I've literally just got back to a land station in March this year. So yeah, it was a great experience. Great to do something different. Um, and yeah, I learned a lot from my time on the river. I had a guy on Kevin Hines who actually survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. And they did oh, wow. an incredible documentary, but one of the lesser, it's just something people don't think about is where there is a high, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, my goodness. Where, where people take their own lives a lot, because my yeah. grammar is, is, you know, failing me. Um, there are crews, for example, in boats that are constantly recovering those bodies. And then you have to think about the mental health impact on them. So, you know, seven years on that boat, did you notice a kind of uh, an amassing of memories and maybe kind of that pushing the mental health element a little bit? Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, it's, it's crazy. Some of the, some of the instances we, we attended on the boat, it's, it, you know, the bridges in central London aren't even that high. You're talking about the Golden Great Bridge, which is massive, but say the, probably the highest bridge in central London, you're probably only going to be falling three, four metres into the water. But I've seen people literally jump off the bridge in front of the boat. They go under the water. They never come back up because there's the currents in the Thames are so strong. There's so many obstructions under the water. It's just, it's crazy. And you, you're just searching for them. They, they don't come back up. And then, unfortunately, they, they'll pop back up you know, in a few days or a week's time, as soon as they start to decompose, the body fills with gas and then, then you're recovering those bodies, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, it's shocking when you see someone who's alive one minute, they jump into the river. You don't see them again until a week later. And then you're, you know, then you're recovering a, de you know, a decomposing corpse. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's not pleasant, but it's, uh, you know, that, like you say, the cumulative effect of doing that over time, it's like that like we said about the bucket it's going to just be more more things into that bucket isn't it unfortunately yeah absolutely and it's, it's unavoidable I mean you know that like you said if you're able to turn the tap at the bottom off I mean open I mean you know and, and off offload some of that then that's brilliant but that's taking away the you know the, the fact that you've got other compounding elements, whether it's stress from maybe a you know a bad supervisor at work, whether it's a relationship issue, whether it's you know all these other things, did you ever find yourself in a, in a darker place, or you know were you able to to navigate that with the wellness side? Um, 
not when my, my time on the boats, but I I did I, one time I was going when I was back on a land station before I went to the boat. I was going through um I went through a pretty bad breakup with um an ex girlfriend and I was in a I I was in a pretty bad um well mental state at the time I'd say and. It just one one night it erupted on my way home from work. So I was I was cycling home from work, and this um, this motorist he just cut me up, and I just lost the plot. I just got off my bike. I kicked the kicked the, the door of his car. It made a massive dent into his car. He got out of the car, and we squared up to each other. And it it was you know I was that far away from hitting the guy, and it, I just I suddenly had a moment of clarity. I was like, what what the fuck am I doing? Do you know what I mean? And I think that was definitely a cumulative factor of the stuff that was going on at work at the time. And then this breakup with an ex-girlfriend. And I was just like, what am I doing? Um, but like they, the way I've always found it, which has helped me massively in situations like that, is being physically fit as well. So whenever I, I find myself struggling like that, I get to the gym or I go for a run or I go and do some sort of physical activity because I know after I've done that, I will, I definitely won't be feeling as bad as I was beforehand. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Firstly, I think the vulnerability is what we need to hear. And I think a lot of us can relate. I would say if, if I was asked, you know, where, where were, was my stress most evident? It was behind the wheel. And I think it's, you know, the, the, the fact that you're trying to be kind and compassionate in your job and then you get selfishness on the road but also i don't know if you find this too when when you see someone driving poorly for me it, it would absolutely fucking infuriate me because you've seen the bodies of the people that drivers yeah. like that kill you know so i think most you know responders can probably relate exactly to what you're going through at that moment but then you scale back and go well you know well slept you know mentally healthy lee wouldn't have that response you know i have i have control of my emotions but as we get more tired and we create or we carry excuse me more and more weight from what we see and do some of that ability to control emotions starts to diminish and i think that's a huge red flag if you're normally a pretty chill nice person all of a sudden you want to punch someone's fucking face in. yeah i am I, that's, that's the thing i'm pretty laid back most of the time you know and then i just it was like you say it was the fact that he was just driving, this guy was just driving like a dickhead and he was, he purposely tried to swerve in front of me, you know, and it's like, you're, you're in a car, I'm on a bike, you know what I mean? There's no contest. If you, if you hit me with your car, I'm going to, I'm going to suffer a serious injury. And I think, yeah, I mean, like you say, I think it was, you know, you can go back to something that you've seen previously in an instant. You think, yeah. I mean, like you say, just something just snaps and yeah, fortunately it didn't end in a bad way. Absolutely. Well, you look at some of the the crimes that first responders commit, and you know we've talked about this in a few episodes. Not taking away from the victim, but when you kind of reverse engineer, you know, a domestic abuse um, incident or something like that, and you, are, well, how was this person when you first met? Well, they were loving and kind and compassionate, and now all of a sudden, you know, they're they got a hair trigger, and you know, they, they've shoved their wife. It doesn't remove the fact that they did something horrendous to their loved one. But when you analyze that case, 
how much of that personality change comes from the job that that we do, you know, and if you can really, as we said, talk about mental health through your whole career, you probably would save a lot of marriages and save some of the responders, you know, being locked up and losing their profession. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I don't know what it's like out there in the States, but even a lot of... a lot of the chatting around the mess table is what, like a back at the station. That is that helps a lot, I think, with guys. You know, you come back from an incident, you you sit around, you have a cup of tea or coffee in America, um, and you, you chat about stuff. Do you know what I mean? And and some, you know, some of the chat is it can be quite dark, but it's that dark humor. And probably if someone who who was a member of the public listened to that chat, they'd be probably horrified of some of the stuff that the guys, guys are saying, do you know what I mean? But it's, it's not like you say, it's, it's that dark humor, but that, that chatting about it, it helps. It helps rather than some, someone just sitting there bottling it all up and, you know, and then something like that happening, what we just talked about. It's you chat about it, you have a laugh, you know, you're not laughing. You're not laughing at someone else's misfortune. You're laughing amongst yourselves. At it's hard to explain, isn't it? I don't know. You must have experienced it. It's hard to explain to someone who's not in the job what you what you're laughing about and the band the band that you're having. You don't mean any disrespect to the person who's been injured or you know if there's been a fatality, but you have that sort of camaraderie with the guys and the girls, and it's sort of at the end of it, you feel you feel better than as if you, than if you just gone back to the station or sat around the, the mess table and just been miserable and not talked about something. Does that make sense? No, oh, completely. And I think that dark humor, even psychologically, when you look at it, making jokes like that actually deregulates the, the nervous system. So you go from that kind of fight or flight element back to, you know, parasympathetic, the more relaxed thing. And like you said, it's not that you're laughing at the person, but some of these scenes just have this like, ridiculous irony to it you know someone whatever happens to them and their trousers end up you know around the rank whatever it is you know and, and it is there are moments of of humor amidst all this misery and if you just focus on the misery you take that misery back if you can find something you know between the lines that was you know that you can kind of offload and, and storytell and laugh about it's not belittling what happened to the person because you were the men and women that responded to try and help that person you know your actions yeah. show that you care but what really scares me is, you know, over COVID, from what I heard, I don't know if it was the same with your stations, but over here, they were telling crews they couldn't eat together. So that very healing dining room table was taken away from them. And then even this element of, you know, what they call hazing, which is, you know, there's hazing, there's, there's you know, hatred and, and actions behind that. But there's also fire hu- firehouse humor and, and take, you know, making fun of each other. That is a very healing, positive thing that actually pulls us together. So by the over, you know, political correctness and telling people they physically cannot be in the same rooms as each other, you literally destroyed the very coping mechanism that is so important in a fire station. Yeah, definitely. It's, like you say, it's the fine line between, um, you know, the banter sometimes, but without that, then, there's, you know, you, you can't do the job. You can't do the job. It's, you've got to have that. And if you aren't, you aren't having the piss taken out of you, then there's something wrong. You know, that's right. I've always said to people, if you're not, if someone's not taking the piss out of you, then they probably don't like you. If you're taking the piss out of you, they like you, if that makes, if that makes sense. And by taking the piss, probably Americans don't really understand what I mean by that. It means <laughs> taking the mickey. So, 
if someone's taking the the Mickey out of you, then you're accepted. But if no one's no one's t- taking the Mickey out of you, then it's probably probably not accepted on the watch. Do you know what I mean? Or on the shift. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It shows that we care. You know, if yeah. they're just being ignored, then you've probably fucked up. So, <laughs> yeah. um, well, then speaking of taking the Mickey, because I'm sure you probably got shit for this too. Talk to me about how you found yourself modeling. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, I definitely had a piss take on with that. Um, so, yeah, I just got approached by um, um, an agent one day. Um, I, was, I was in London. Um, I got approached on the street um, and didn't really think about it. But I thought, well, well I know I can, I can maybe earn a few extra quids and boost my low, low paid fireman salary. Um, so, yeah, I just... I went along, um, did some pictures and sort of, just sort of went from there really and ended up doing quite a lot of fitness type stuff uh, with men's health. And yeah, I've been, been fortunate. I've been, I've been able to do that. So it's something I enjoy, you know, it's a, my passion is fitness and then, yeah, I get to get some work out of it as well, which is, which is ideal. So I know you've been on the, the cover of Men's Health numerous times. Talk to me about you know, your philosophy, I mean, you're talking about the application of your strength and conditioning program as working on the fire ground. So you're not just solely bodybuilding and, you know, doing it for aesthetics. What does, what does fitness look like in the British fire service? And uh, if there's room for improvement, I'll leave that open. You know, what can we do to move the needle to, to raise the bar? Yeah, there's there's definitely room for improvement, and unfortunately, you know, budgets are tight in the UK fire service. Um, you know, gyms aren't what they should be. Uh, most of the gym equipment in in the gym, in my station I'm at now is my, is my own gym equipment I've taken in myself. Um, you know, because this you know budgets are tight, costs costs have got to be cut, and unfortunately, um, the people in charge don't really see fitness as a priority, which. I think is very short-sighted. Um, you know, they, in London, they did bring in um, fitness testing because we didn't actually have a fitness test once you joined the job. We had a medical every three years where you had to pass um, a chest to step test, which is basically just stepping up onto a box in time with a, with a beat, but there wasn't an actual physical uh, fitness test. So they brought one in a couple of years ago now, it, um, and again, it was a pretty poor test. It was basically walking on a treadmill for tw- 12 minutes with the treadmill gradually um, increasing in incline. Um, but they, so basically when they brought that in initially, they said that if you don't pass the, the test, you'll be taken off the run immediately and you'll be given a fitness plan. And then you'll stay on the fitness plan until you can pass the test. But very quickly, they realized that so many people were going to fail this test they'd have no firefighters left to be on the run. So they quickly scrapped that. And now you can pass the test. Um, there's an acceptable level, which is a lot. I, I don't know exactly what it is because I haven't done it myself yet. But um, yeah, they basically scaled it massively back because not people were passing this test, which is is shocking, you know. Because I think you, you as a professional firefighter, you have a responsibility to yourself, to the rest of your crew and to the members of public that you're serving to be physically fit to do the job. So if you're turning up for work and you cannot, you know, perform basic f- stuff without being out of breath, then yeah, I think you need to ask some serious questions about yourself. Well, perfect example. My last place, even though we protected a theme park, 
I had a 28-story um, hotel right next to me. So we would do, you know, like the mimic a high-rise strip. So that will be nothing crazy, just, you know, a single hose line, two spare air bottles, because obviously when you get up there, you, you're going to need to change um, a search, you know, forcible entry tool, and that was it. And then with your gear, that was 100 pounds on my skinny-ass 170-pound frame. So when you think of a treadmill test that slowly starts to incline, that doesn't really mimic anything. And even the combat challenge, to, to play devil's advocate, the combat challenge is awesome, but I mean, the elite people are doing it in what, sub two minutes. So, you know, that doesn't really represent the fire ground either. It's too too acute. It's, it's a hundred meter sprint. Um, so what blows me away is we have the the perfect tools to be fair when it comes to fitness evaluation you know you you extend the hose line you drag a dummy you pick up a ladder i mean it doesn't matter if you're you know male female gay straight black white whatever you know this the, the fairest tool is you create a scenario with you know evolutions that you're going to do and obviously you know climbing vertically is is part of it so if you're not climbing stairs if you're not you know doing some sort of forcible entry prop or whatever it is you're kind of missing missing the mark completely so that whether it's america or australia or, or the uk it blows my mind all the effort that is spent in avoiding just making a middle of the road common sense fitness evaluation that you have to pass and as with the mental health thing if you create that expectation from day one when you graduate the fire academy then you'll just keep you know that the bar won't be that far away but when you've got people wearing uniform that a 12 minute walking test is going to fail out i mean that's a, again a huge red flag and, and that's something you know now think about grenfell how many of those responders would be able to get up like ricky did to the very top floor you know and will people die because of your fitness and that's that 12 minutes on the treadmill is in shorts and a t-shirt and trainers you know what i mean it's not even in your kit so it's like you say it's totally not Relate, job related at all it's a sort of i don't know what it is it's a token sort of gesture i think toward towards fitness but yeah box checking by the sound of it yeah yeah unfortunately i think you're right you know i, I obviously I, I have to be careful what i say because i'm still i'm i'm employed by the fire service and you know these, these opinions are my own opinions but i think you know they've They've lowered certain standards in an attempt to try and encourage more people from certain groups to join the fire service. Um, and by doing that, unfortunately, it's yeah, it's yeah, it's it's lowered it's lowered the fitness standard, unfortunately. Yeah, well, that well, that was one of the most liberating things for me when I transitioned out after fourteen years. Is is I had an epiphany, like oh. I can actually speak freely now and speak freely doesn't mean talking shit and you know all this stuff it's like hey let's drag these things out of the shadows that actually need to be talked about but as you said when you work for an agency your hands are kind of tied but the average person would want the firefighter paramedic police officer to be able to get to their loved one and then pull them out and then you know perform whatever medical interventions need to happen and by lowering these standards I see as well, you know, universally, as you lower standards, I think you attract less candidates. And obviously, you know, the ability of those candidates are lower. When you set the bar high, I mean, I'm sure the SAS doesn't have to go to the job center for look for recruits. You know what I mean? People are lining up around the door. And you, when people on the outside looking in think of the London Fire Brigade, they think of an elite uniform professional. Mm. So 
you know it to me it, it's it's really it's cowardice to not have the courage to put in an actionable fitness standard that you demand everyone to reach now if you bring it in right now of course you've got to have a transition period where everyone who doesn't make it as you said is mentored and coached to get back or you know they realize okay this isn't the job for me so you can't just you know fire everyone overnight but if you don't set a standard you're going to see a slowly decrease you know um in in fire and i just heard recently i think um one of the london uh, police departments completely not remove their test but they had a, a kind of addendum where you can just decide not to do the test <laughs> so you know and these are the people that are protecting our loved ones so i as a you know someone who kept my fitness up my entire career and still does to this day i expect the people that run on my children to be able to do the fucking job yeah. and if if the environment is not encouraging them to to stay you know, at their peak physical ability and also give them the support to do that, the gyms and, you know, the time off and all these things that we need, then we are straying way from, you know, what our profession should actually look like. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's like society in general, I think, though, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, you can't, you can't be too elitist. You can't be, um, you can't, you know, if someone can't reach this level, then you can't, discriminate against them it's, it's not discriminate against them though it's you this is the level that you need to reach because people's lives are, are going to be at risk so you, you need to reach that level you know if you can't reach it then okay we can provide the training for you and we can like you say we can coach you to reach that level but ultimately that is the level and that's the level you need to reach and that's the level you need to maintain throughout your career not just as soon as you get into the job yeah i mean you imagine the the um uh, iconic SAS Iranian embassy siege. You know, imagine if those guys had been kind of waddling along and then the the, the repelling rope snapped because they couldn't take their weight and then all the hostages got shot. You know, I yeah. mean, that sounds farcical, but that's basically what's happening in some of our agencies. And yeah. I'm not belittling the people if they have, a, you know, a desire to get back to where they should have been. But, you know, we have a two-pronged attack. We have some people wearing uniform that shouldn't be in that profession. And then we also have an environment that doesn't encourage the rest of them to be able to reach where they need to be. And then we have a group of people that, regardless of that, still stay in shape. And that's amazing. But if we don't affect the environment that, you know, gives the people the tools and the rest and recovery to thrive then you can't just put it on the shoulders of responders and say, you need to get fit. It has to be both of those conversations simultaneously. Yeah, I think yeah, I definitely agree 100%. Right, well, I'm going to shift away from <laughs> fitness because we could you know, bang that drum all day. Um, talk to me about riding a fire engine from New York to LA. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, so that was that was a one hell of a trip. That was uh, so it was the uh, the ten year anniversary of nine eleven. So I I'd, I'd been out to New York for the five year anniversary with some other firefighters from London. We just went to the ceremony, you know, to pay our respects. And um, while we were there out for the fifth year anniversary, we just came up with this idea. We thought, wouldn't it be a great idea to ship a British fire engine to New York um, for the ten year anniversary and drive it across? The country to LA raising money for some charities so we came back to the UK and you know we talked about it a bit more over a few beers and then the next thing you know we were buying this fire engine um, and we raised a bit of sponsorship money uh, we put it on a ship out to New York and it got there just before the 10-year anniversary we flew out 
Um, and yeah, we went went to the ceremony. We had we stayed in a firehouse in New York um, with some guys we met the previous trip. Um, went to the ceremony, and then we ended up driving the truck all the way across um, the states to LA, raising money along the uh, the way, which we donated to the U.S. Benevolent Fund and then the British Firefighters Charity. And then when we got to LA. Um, we donated the, the truck to a charity which um, puts them back into use in South America. So the USA Air Force then flew it down to, I think it was Nicaragua it ended up. Uh, they put it on the back of a transport plane, flew it down to Nicaragua. Um, and yeah, it got put back into service down there. So yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was an interesting trip. Now, so you're a bunch of, you know, British firefighters. You're going across from coast to coast. You know, what were some of the stories or differences and or similarities that you found in all the people you interacted with as you drove over? Well, we didn't, we didn't have a plan. <laughs> so we, we, we got to New York. We had a rough route planned out, but we didn't have any contacts in, I don't know, say, for example, in, one, in Nashville, for example. We, one of the places we stopped was Nashville. So we would just literally drive into the, the city and we'd find the nearest firehouse and we'd just turn up there on, on, the, on the forecourt of the station and the guys would come out, they'd be like, what the hell is that you drive in? And we'd be like, then we'd tell them the story and it was just like, it was like uh, turning up at a fire station in the UK, you know, the Brotherhood, it was like, come and sit around the mess table with us, have some food, you know, we'd talk about stuff. It was, it's like it's like you cut from the same cloth. Do you know what I mean? You, you, even though we're thousands of miles apart, you've just turned up at this fire station in Nashville. Um, they've never met you before in your life, but then you're having some dinner with them and then they take, and then they recommend all the bars because we went out for some beers afterwards. They recommended the bars for you to go and have some beers in. And it's just, yeah, it was the hospitality was just unbelievable. It was like, yeah, it was like they were your mates that you'd, you'd known for years. You hear a lot of people say, you know, the brotherhood is is dead. You know, there's no camaraderie in the fire service anymore. And I disagree. I mean, I think, you know, that maybe the number of people that bought into it may be a little bit smaller than before. But when you go to a different fire station, when you go, I'm, I'm going to go to a thing called the 343 Hero Challenge, which is a 9-11 um, tribute workout that uh, Orange County holds. Um, and then they do fundraising for, for charities. Um, and... You see a lot of the same faces, but the camaraderie there is incredible. All these different firefighters will go and it's like a CrossFit style competition. Um, but so I disagree. I think the camaraderie is there. It's just often it's the same kinds of people that, that, that go through this. So that's so good to hear that, you know, more often than not, when, when you do something like you did, you know, it doesn't matter which country you're standing in. If you're a pompier or a bombero or a firefighter or, you know, a fireman or whatever term we use, there's an immediate understanding that you're the same kind of person, no matter what continent you're standing on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I can't sing it highly enough for the hospitality we experienced them on that trip. It was, it was second to none, you know, they, they t took us in and, you know, we, they wouldn't let us pay for anything. It was, yeah, it, it was un unbelievable, you know, and going back to what you said about, you know, the brother being dead, I think, I think the reason some people say that is because now I think a lot of, whereas previously guys joined the fire service for a 20, 30 year career. Now people are joining and they're doing like five years and they're leaving and stuff. But ultimately those people, maybe it's not right for them, but I think the 
the core people, the, the people that the job suits will stay in for those 20, 30, 30 years. You know what I mean? Some people will come in and they, they, they won't, they won't like it and they'll, they'll leave. And a, a big part of that in the UK now is because they changed our pensions. So whereas you used to join and you do your 30 years and you'd get a, a good pension at the end of it, they've changed that. So it's not as attractive for some people to stay, but, um, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely still there and it, it, it's still going strong. All the competitions I've done around the world, you know, you meet guys from France, German, Germany, Poland, and it's like, you know, they could be on the neighbouring station to you in London. You're, you've, you're going through this, you're talking about the same stuff, you're laughing at the same jokes. It's, yeah, I love it. It's great. Well, you mentioned the Firefighters Charity, so um, I've heard nothing but amazing things. Talk to me about them through your lens. Um, so the firefighters charity is a is the main is the main charity for firefighters in the UK. So um, they provide a lot of rehabilitation services. So they've got um, different centres around the UK. I think they've got like two or three where if you're injured on the job, then you can go and uh, get some rehabilitation there. Um, and it also is your family can do that as well. So if a member of your family was injured, they can help you or help the member of your family. And, uh, rehab and it's not only the physical rehab they also have you know mental mental health workers there who can help you um if you're suffering from from mental health issues so they provide a lot of you know great great work and great great um support services for for the firefighters in the uk brilliant now i had johnny garrett on the show so i know that you are a spokesperson for um william wood watches as well and i know they support the firefighters charity so how did you meet johnny and have that relationship oh yeah johnny's a good guy so he just approached me um i can't remember where i first met him you know but it was just when he was starting his brand off um and he told me the story and what a story you know about you know his grandfather and he's so passionate about it and he was he was looking to sort of chat to people, make some contacts within the fire service. So he approached me and he said, "You know, can you help me out?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course." You know, he told me the story and the way he donates the proceeds, a portion of his proceeds to the firefighters charity. He's such a, you know, he's such a good guy. And I just thought, yeah, of course I'm going to help you. You know, it's what, like you say, it's going back to that brotherhood thing. It's what the fire service is about. You're going to support people who are doing good things. So. Yeah, I was more than happy to get involved with him and help him as he's sort of grown his brand and it's going from strength to strength at the moment. You know, he's he's out there in the States doing stuff with the um, FDNY. He's making watches for FDNY and he's, yeah, he's, he's doing big things now. So I love Johnny and uh, much love to him. Yeah, his watches are absolutely beautiful. He sent me one of yeah. the ones with the repurposed hose straps. And yeah, absolutely. I'm not a watch wearer. I told him that, but I, I wore it on a date with my wife a little while ago. And it's a yeah, beautiful timepiece. Yeah, and it's such a great story, you know, the way he's honoring his granddad and he's got a real passion for it. And you, you can tell that when you, to anyone, when you talk to him for the first time, you can tell how, how passionate he is about it and how invested he is in it. Yeah, well, I love the fact that you literally have a piece, and being English working in America, I mean, it's even better, but you have a piece of British history stamped into that watch as well. So, I mean, a 100-year-old helmet is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, they're pretty unique timepieces. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to um, the turf games, but before I do, one thing I forgot to ask you, 
you know, we mentioned about 9-11, you know, and, and the tribute to that. Well, London obviously has been subjected to some pretty horrific terror attacks, 7-7 being the worst, and then some of the other incidents since. In your role as a firefighter, did you respond to any of those? And if so, what was your kind of story there? No, so I was actually off duty for all, all of those incidents. Um, yeah, so I missed them all, unfortunately. Uh, all, all those big ones. Uh, like I said previously, Grenfell, I was on duty, but I was on the boat that night. So um, didn't attend Grenfell either. So no, I missed all, all of those big ones. So with that different perspective then, what did you see as far as the impact of those events on the men and women that you served with that did respond? Um, yeah, I, it definitely, it's definitely took, taken its toll. Uh, obviously, Grenfell being the, the most significant one. I know quite a few people that have suffered, suffered a lot since, since Grenfell. Um, and yeah, I... Yeah, this, and I think this, even though there are support services within the fire brigade now, within the London Fire Brigade, I think they just became overwhelmed because of the amount of people that were they were having to deal with, you know, and they, they, they are a great support service, but they just physically could, I don't think they physically could deal with it for the volume of people that were, that were needing their services. Um, and some people have left the fire brigade as a result of it, you know, as a result of those things they experienced that night. Um, so I just, yeah, I hope those people are, you know, looking after themselves now, even though they're not, they're not in the fire service anymore. But yeah, it's um, traumatic for all those involved. Well, like I said, I had Ricky on, but I also had Danny Cotton on. And seeing the London Fire Brigade and then her being kind of dragged through the mud after this, already, you know, suffering the inability to, excuse me, the inability to save, which I think is one of the most crippling things that any responder can have. And then shirking the blame from, you know, the, the maintenance of the tower itself, the people who put the cladding on and putting it on the fire service, on the fire brigade, as a responder across the Atlantic, I was disgusted by that. Yeah, it's, it's shocking, you know, but that's what, the, that's what politics is like in the UK, unfortunately. Um, and big business, you know, they will try and shirk the blame, like you say, and put it onto people who are, who are there to help, you know. A great example of this is um, when Boris Johnson was the mayor of London. So before he came, became prime minister, he was mayor of London and um, he decided to close 10 fire stations in London. So obviously we were campaigning against the closures, you know, it was going to increase in ten, attendance time. So this is one of the things that always sticks in my mind that he then came out and said, oh, attendance times won't be affected he made a proper uh, an official statement saying attendance times won't be affected by the closure of these 10 fire stations but what he didn't tell the members of the public was that they'd increased the attendance times so i can't remember the exact figures now so yeah technically he wasn't lying attendance times wouldn't be affected but he hadn't told the public that they'd increased the attendance times <laughs> so and that that sort of sums it up for me do you know what i mean it, and these these people can say things like that and do things like that and they just they just aren't held accountable for it unfortunately well, what kills me as well is that there's also not a conversation of hey taxpayer you're still paying the same tax but we're reducing the delivery of service so it'd be one thing if they're like well you're going to get a tax refund of 500 pounds and we're going to close some fire stations but we're going to keep taking the same tax money from you but the chances of the person getting to your kid in the burning bedroom 
are now going to be reduced by another five or 10 minutes. And that's never laid out. So, you know, when you look at the priorities, the hierarchy of needs, someone's family safety is going to be at the absolute, you know, pinnacle, the, the most important. And so, you know, by this whole kind of cup game that they do, they're kind of, you know, smoke and mirroring the fact that now those families are 100% more likely to perish in a fire or a shooting or whatever it is because of this politicking that they're doing. And obviously that money's going somewhere else where it should be going to police fire, you know, EMS. These things that we are calling 999 on our worst fucking day. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's not, like you say, it's not just the fire service. You know, we, I was at an incident the other night and um, requested an ambulance and it was basically no, no ETA for the ambulance. So, what could we, you know, everyone, everyone is stretched. I'm my brother, two of my brothers are police officers. Um, and, yeah, they, they tell me the similar stories from, from their their jobs so it's just yeah it's it's getting to a point now where something's got to give unfortunately and i don't know what it's going to be but yeah unfortunately it's going to be well i know what it's going to be it's going to be people's lives unfortunately yeah no 100 percent. and that's the problem is when you're in these professions you can anticipate that before it happens but the you know the politicking normally waits until the people are dead and then rat- retroactively find all this fucking money from you know from nowhere you know see covid for example and all of a sudden you know post 9/11 fdny is getting whatever money they want before that they were struggling you know and browning out stations so yeah it's it's disgusting all right. Well, then let's talk about the turf games before we go to some some closing questions. So you you were already in the CrossFit world. Talk to me about your involvement with that and the programming. Okay. So yeah, it's turf games is it's like a a functional fitness or competition and community. So it was a, a friend of mine, a guy called Andy Manti. He um he actually set it up because he was he was into fitness, but he 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 wasn't uh, he wasn't into CrossFit. He was. He wasn't. Uh, he didn't do like the Olympic lifting or gymnastics, so the more complicated movements of CrossFit. So he wanted to create something that was maybe a bit more accessible to people, so it, just your average gym person that could go to the gym. So it started in London as just a group of guys, you know, meeting up and doing a little a, a workout once or twice a week at gyms, and then it sort of grew from that into a competition. And then girls were like, "Oh, you guys are doing that. We want to get involved." So then girls got involved and then it's just basically grown from that and so we just had our our summer festival in london which we had three thousand athletes compete at uh, which was our biggest one so far um i'm off to australia in a couple of weeks three weeks we've got a big competition out there in australia and then we've got another one in dubai in november so it's yeah it's uh it's great. It's fitness. Get the travel, which is another thing I love. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's great to be involved with. Brilliant. Well, I would love to go to some closing questions before I let you go, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So, the first one I love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, oh, yeah, well, a book I've just finished reading again for the second time, actually. It's called um, Sapiens. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I have it. Yeah, yeah, it's a great book. Like I say, it's the second time I've read it, and it's just, yeah, it's just very interesting. You know, it's it's about basically the evolution of the human race, um, and this, yeah, it's just fascinating. So, I definitely recommend that. 
Brilliant. It's a, a good read. Yeah, I'm gonna. I, I I started it. I'm about a third of the way through, and I put it down and do some other stuff. But I want to finish it and then see if I can get the author wrong. So I think it'll be an interesting perspective too. Yeah, he's also got a, another one called I think it's called Homeo Deuce, which is a look into the future. I haven't I haven't actually read that one yet, but um, yeah, that's on my list to read next. I think. Yeah, and I think isn't that addressing religion as well? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Beautiful. All right. Well, then, what about a film and or documentary? Um, I'm, I don't really watch a lot of TV, but I do watch documentaries and one I watched recently, which was pretty good. Um, it's called last breath. Don't know if, you, if you heard of it, no, I haven't. It, it's about, um, I don't want to spoil it, but it's about commercial saturation divers, um, and an incident that happens on one of their dives. So yeah, without going into too much detail and spoiling the story for you, but it's definitely worth checking out. Brilliant. Yeah, actually, there's they've released, I think, like one or two dramatized. And I think there was an actual documentary on the rescue of the, the, the football team in Thailand. And right. I think yeah. one of the rescuers was a was a UK firefighter. And I reached out to him a long time ago, and I think it was probably too close to the incident because I didn't get a very friendly response. <laughs> but I think I need to circle around now because that's another incredible story. And that team yeah. that went in there was completely international. Yeah. Yeah, what, what a rescue operation that was. Unbelievable. Yeah, terrifying too. And you look at what they actually yeah. went through. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Um, there's a guy actually, um, he used to be a London firefighter. Wait, wait, he's still a firefighter. He was in London. So I first met him. Uh, when he was in London as a firefighter, he's now transferred up to um, South Yorkshire. So he, he got married, had a family, and he wanted to move out of London to get a, get a house. Obviously, London property prices are pretty expensive. So he's now a, he's now a firefighter in South Yorkshire. Um, but before he joined the fire service, he was in the parachute regiment, um, and he saw some service in Iraq. So I think, yeah, he'd be a good guy to talk to, Steve Stratford. He's a mate of mine. So I can put you in contact with him. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Let's make it happen. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, where to find the turf games. What do you do to decompress? Um, it's fitness for me. You know, if if I'm, all I'm feeling stressed at all, it's got to be get to the gym or get out, do a run or also get out in, into nature. You know, I love be out, outside in the countryside um, and traveling as well any of those things yeah that's what you find me doing when i'm not at the fire station basically <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well i know you have your own website uh, you said we've got the turf games we've got social media where are the best places to learn about all those things online uh probably is my instagram is the thing i'm probably most active on it's lee phillips 999 uh you can find me there feel free to drop me a message if you want to chat to me about anything um and yeah i'll get back to you beautiful well lee i want to say thank you so much it's been such a great conversation i mean so many different you know stories with you working on the fireboat to driving a british fire engine across america so i just want to thank you so much for coming on the behind the shield podcast and sharing your stories today oh thanks for having me and um, i appreciate it and i hope yeah you hope your listeners got something from it thank you 